season of Lent together. And we're going through this, continuing to what it means and what the Lord would have for us and what the Holy Spirit would have for us as we journey through this season together. Um, one of the things that we talked about and, and that we started this season with was that we wanted to remind ourselves and we walked through Jesus going into the wilderness and we talked about how that there is this way in which um, Jesus invites us in that moment to be reminded of or, or to like recall the realities of evil. That there's this thing, evil is, that it exists. So often, I think, in our 21st century mindset, uh, and there's lots of academic and philosophical and even theological reasons of why we've gotten here, but a lot of times I think we can sort of think of, and we're maybe a little bit more comfortable, uh, oftentimes not even using the language of sin, but just like mistakes, brokenness, hardships, failures, these kind of self-help language and I don't say that pejoratively I don't mean to uh, speak ill to like self-help it's kind of this therapeutic culture that we find ourselves in oftentimes we'll talk about evil in that kind of way or, or sin in that kind of way and we oftentimes avoid the word sin itself I'm guilty of this and so if you've been coming to mosaic for a really long time you may have picked up some of my language, and I oftentimes in preaching will not go there. I, you know, we kind of hold off on that word. And even evil will hold off on this idea. And oftentimes we think about it, uh, we understand that no one has to, in any way, shape, or form, spend very much time conjuring up some sort of sanctified imagination to, to think about or understand the realities that we live, as Steinbeck would say, east of Eden that we live outside of the garden, we live outside of the way things were meant to be. Your life, your experiences, whether it is yours or someone that is one degree separated from you, understands hardship. We look and we read the news, especially in a 24-7 news cycle where we always have to be talking about something, like brokenness is in front of us. This idea that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Death is oftentimes in front of us. And so we get that. We, we wrap our minds around that. But I think that a lot of times what we can do, because we're enlightened 21st century, like we went to school, we understand science, like the devil is not like a pitchforked, red leotard wearing, you know, horns on his head character. Like we know better than that. We're above myth and we're above kind of this way in which we think about the world and this light versus dark. And so a lot of times we think of evil and we think of that brokenness and living outside of what God intended for us, living east of Eden, as something of maybe, you know, good intentions gone a little awry. Good, good hopes, uh, good desires, oftentimes maybe just missing the mark a little bit. We think about our things of our own lives as like, oh, you know what, like I just kind of messed up. I think about this one a lot with parenting. I don't know if other parents feel this way. I feel this way. This is to juxtapose what I'm talking about. There are moments where I get angry as a parent. And there are moments when I'm talking to other parents and the other parent looks at me and they say to me, man, you got a three and a five-year-old. Like, they're, they're boys. They're Like, of course you're going to get mad. And I'm like, no. Don't tell me, of course I'm going to get mad. I am telling you that, like, my response is wrong. It is flawed. 
It is broken. Like there is something evil about it. If you go through therapy, one of the hardest things you will do is you will have to look back at your life and you will have to acknowledge that some of the things that were done to you by people that you think are really kind and good in your life were done on purpose. Now maybe it wasn't like this conscious decision that they were like, I'm going to hurt that person. But it was this conscious decision that, they, that, that your parents made or someone in your life made that, that there was a moment that I make and I, I have to look at my boys in the eyes and I have to say like, guys, like, I was angry, I was feeling this other thing, and because of that, like, I chose, I knew what I was doing. I am an adult that is capable of understanding and controlling my actions, and I chose to behave in such a way that caused harm to you, because I sinned. But in our therapeutic kind of, and I'm in this world, don't get me wrong, like, there's this way in which we talk about evil, we talk about brokenness. And just kind of like, hey, you tried your best, but you didn't quite get it. You, you did your best, you, you, you were going for it. And then sometimes there's the bigger evil, and we're like, you know, it's just like good people kind of gone awry. Lent, however, forces us to look into the realities of evil. To confront it, to face it. And, and what we mean by that, and what we define by that, is that Evil is this like real force, and it is personal, and it is active in the world. I said this the first Sunday of Lent. We're on our third Sunday, by the way, for those of you keeping score at home. We have three more before Resurrection Sunday, so just to give you some time frame. What I said was that if we have an advocate, a helper in the Holy Spirit then that seems to imply that there is some sort of adversary. And what that adversary is, we know is not the red pitchfork, leotard-wearing, horned devil. But it is something personal. It is something that uh, confronts us, that desires and intends that we would not walk in the way that the Lord would have for us. This is something that we have to confront. This is something we have to deal with. And the season of Lent is forcing us to do that, to walk into the wilderness, to confront the thing that pulls us away from what God would intend for us to have for our lives and to do. And you see that in Nicodemus, what we heard preached last Sunday in John 3. Our, our passage this morning is John 4, and it's really long, and I'm going to read most of it. I'm going to read a lot. So be prepared. But Nicodemus gets these realities. He gets the reality that evil exists. And he is shaping his life and what he's doing around this confrontation and desiring and longing for good to come into the world. And here's the thing is he still falls short. He's still missing something. Nicodemus' story is meant to, and I'm coming back to it because I want you to like hold on to this juxtaposition of what we're about to read in John 4 with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. John intentionally puts these two stories side by side so that you can see something that's happening here. In one instance, you have someone who is socially, intellectually, religiously accepted on all fronts, is kind of the pinnacle. You may have this person in your life, you know, and it may not be the same for everyone. We live in a much more open world, whatever. But like there's this person, these, this couple, this family, whatever it may be that you kind of in your mind, you're like, 
that person's the one that's got it. Like, that's the person. They seem happy, that life seems good, they do everything right, I never see them, like, have any failures, whatever it is. Their life is going the way that I wish my life could go. For most of the Jewish people in the ancient Near East, someone like Nicodemus would have been that guy. Like, he would have been the person. And everyone would have looked to him and said, like, man, that's it. And what you get in that conversation and what Kyle walked like, through last week is this idea that in that moment, he is coming to Jesus and says, I have done the things. Studied. I've done the practices, I have made it, my life is good, I have wealth, I have status, I have, like, you know, honor. I pray, I fast, I do the religious things, and what you sense in that moment is that he is longing for something more. He's saying to Jesus, what else is there? What could there possibly be that I'm missing out on? I've done it all. And everyone around would have been looking. And that's, Kyle talked about this too, but we look at the Pharisees and we look at someone like Nicodemus and our temptation is to sort of vilify them and to kind of other them and be like, gosh, that guy just totally missed it. How could he do that? All the disciples would have been sitting around Jesus hearing Nicodemus talk and they'd have been like, that's the guy. Like he's one of the dudes. Like he's got it. His life was what we were going for when we were 12 and we got kicked out and now we're dirty fishermen. And now we can't do that thing that we wanted to do. And he's saying, yeah, but there's, there's got to be more, right? I've gotten it all, and yet I go to bed at night thinking, wondering, longing for this life that has to be bigger than, fuller than, more infinite than what is in front of me and what I'm experiencing. And then on the opposite side of that, you turn to John 4, and you see a woman that is in many ways, like, for a Jewish person at least, like, all of the opposite. She's collecting her own water, so she's not wealthy. She is a Samaritan, which is an outcast. She's a woman in the ancient Near East, which wouldn't have been an easy life. We find out more about her story, and we see that there's been hardship and trauma, difficulties that are unexplainable. And she, too, is longing and saying, there has to be more than this. There has to be something else to life. Because this can't be it. And I think John is wanting us to see these two stories juxtaposed against each other. So as we read, hold attention in mind. So this is in John 4. And since it's so long, I may stop and give uh, just a few kind of remarks that they're not throwaway, but they may, you may find them helpful, and I may not reference back to them at all, or I may. Who knows? We'll see where the Spirit takes us. So, it says we're going to start in five. I'm going to read four real quick, and this is the lectionary had, but John 4, 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. You should remember this story in Genesis. Jacob digs a well in uh, the desert and then sets up his life, does a whole bunch of good stuff. And then when he's about to die, he calls his son Joseph out of Egypt, says, hey, I want you to have this land. You should have this. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. I'll say this real quick, too. This is a cool picture of Jesus' humanity. In John 1, we are told that Jesus is... The, the truth, the logos, the knowledge, the word, all reason, 
He is there from the beginning and will be there until the end. He's all eternal, infinite. And then now his uh, perfect square of happiness has collapsed, as we call it in our family, because Anna has the square of happiness when we travel. She must be fed. She must be seated, seated at enough time. Uh, she, she needs hydration, and she needs access to her phone and Internet. And as we travel, if, the, if we can handle one getting out of proportion, two, the whole thing's collapsed. She's human. Jesus is human. Jesus' square of happiness is, seems to be collapsing. He needs to sit down. He needs some water. He's thirsty. So this Samaritan woman is at the well. And Jesus sees her there, and he says, will you give me a drink? John wants us to note that his disciples had gone to the other town, or into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We're going to come back to that, so hold that in your brain. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Okay, so quick background. When they would go to the well in the ancient Near East, there was this thing. Oftentimes they either carried one big pot on their shoulder and some tools with them, but you didn't leave your tools to draw water. You, you, like those were your tools and you took them with you. And so you had to have a rope and something to get down into the well. There was no well, like we imagine, like, you know, a lassie in a, in a bucket in a well. And, a, you know, kid rides in it, falls down. Go save me, lassie. Anyways, so there's this way in which they would have, they, that wouldn't have existed. These were very deep. Also, to help you understand her confusion, living water would have been understood both uh, in a religious context and she being a, a good religious person, because Samaritans were good religious people, they just weren't Jews but they believed in the Old Testament for the most part, at least the Torah, and they would have understood the living water as a frame of reference that would have been religious. Also, it would have been a physical thing. Living water in this time frame would have been understood as running or healthy water. It wasn't stagnant or contaminated water. So when she says this, you can understand her confusion. She's like, yo, you, you, don't, have any, you don't have any tools. What are you doing? You can't get down to this living water. Are you better than Jacob, the one who dug it? And that's called foreshadowing. So, Jesus answers, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It will become living water in, inside of them. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is a husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So remember, they're very religious. They're basically Jews. If you go back Old Testament, the split between Samaria and the Jews is when the northern and the southern kingdom splits. 
the southern kingdom's trying to keep Jerusalem for themselves, and they're writing all these laws and saying, you have to worship in Jerusalem, you have to worship in Jerusalem. That's the way everybody goes. Northern kingdom did a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have done that got them uh, in trouble to begin with. And so the king of the northern kingdom says, hey, guess what? We're going to build our temples, and we're going to build idols and images. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know these stories, but maybe you just kind of lost the context of it. So there's actually two places. And this is what separates the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews would have thought, man, you guys are real close, but like you're just enough off that like it's more disgusting than if you would just outright reject it. So there's kind of this like half and half thing going on here. And so this is the debate. Samaritans would have considered themselves people of Moses, the book, the Torah. They would have understood so much of this. And of Yahweh, they would have used Yahweh's name. And yet they worship in different places. And the sin for the Jews' mind was that that wasn't the temple and where they thought God was located. So it's a, it's a location issue. And this is the feud between the Samaritans and the Jews. Jesus responds in verse 21. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know this Messiah. He's called the Christ. He is coming and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you, I am he. Just so you know, this is the, one of the only times in all four gospel accounts that Jesus will actually name himself as the Messiah. There's some vague where people say, kind of maybe here, but like this is definitely the only one where it's out and out, just like plain. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, contextual note I think here from John, she's leaving behind her old tools and her old ways of coming to the water. She runs away from them. She goes back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Remember that. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you had told us. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. And some of my words that 
maybe we thank God for it. I don't know. That's up to you. Okay, so let me clear rubble quickly because this is a very familiar passage. And some of you have probably heard a lot of sermons, and up until this week, I would have interpreted the passages the exact same way. And I think we can still draw the same conclusions, but I think this is helpful for us to see anew and afresh. Some quick things. John tells us that Samaritans and Jews don't associate. That is true, and that is, uh, that is something that would have been provable uh, through history. It's not the hard line that we kind of think of it to be. My best analogy all week that I could come up with without like getting too, you know, into, I don't know, whatever, but it's like, I move here and everybody's like, Auburn and Alabama fans hate each other. Like, they, they're, they're not friends, like, whatever. Like, that was what I was told when I moved to the South. And you have to pick a side was the other thing I was told. So I said, go dogs, back-to-back national champs. And so we, we see this. But then, like, you live with people. And, like, there are, you guys know them. We've met them. There are those that I offered a guy an orange shirt one time at, when I was working retail. And he goes, I don't wear that, bro. Thems are Auburn colors. And I was like, my bad. Uh, so, like, there are the crazies. But for the most part, it's a joke. It's, it's a social idea. But, like, there is some interaction. It's a little loose, but, I mean, it's a religious context, one-to-one, you know, so we get it. And so there's some way in which this is the case. So they did associate, but just not like that. Not in a few primary ways. In worship, and then in eating and drinking. These are the three ways in which Jews kind of drew the line. And so this association with the Jews and the Samaritans is that Jesus is getting water from her, okay? So I had oftentimes heard it preached and heard, or my understanding was for the last however many years of my life since I've been able to understand scripture, is that Jesus went through, when it says in verse 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria, that it was this idea that that was the shortest route A to B, but Jews normally went around Samaria, A few extreme Jews would have, but for the most part, most people walking by foot would have just taken the shortest route. They just wouldn't have stopped. You know, it would have been like, lock the doors on your camel, keep going. So, like, just don't stop here because these people aren't the type of people we want to be hanging out with. But they would have went through it. The reason I think that matters, like, some of these academic things, it's like, okay, whatever. But the reason it matters is because I think in verse 4... What we have seen in Jesus' life so far in the account of the Gospels is this urging and this moving of the Spirit to go and do something. And so that urging of the Spirit, I do not think is because like, oh, nobody goes through Samaria and Jesus has to. I think the urging of the Spirit is that Jesus is being led by the Spirit, and when you are led by the Spirit, things of the Spirit and of the kingdom tend to happen. And I would like for us to kind of catch on to that a little bit. Maybe allow that to happen in our lives a little bit more. To let the Spirit urge and to lead. I want that to kind of be something I take away from this. That there's a way in which that I should allow the Spirit to lead me to some places. And when the Spirit leads, Spirit-like things kind of tend to happen. Chance encounters, you know, coincidences seem to kind of start to just pop up when you let the Spirit lead. And I think that that's what John wants us to see. Not that Jesus was going through Samaria, but that Jesus was urged to go on this journey at that time in this direction so that this thing would happen. 
Now, another thing that you've maybe heard is that uh, women didn't go get water at noon, and this woman was an outcast, and we'll get into more of that in just a second. But just so you know, I, I did a, a stupid amount of uh, research and uh, like trying to just like, I got hyper fixated on this one idea. And from what we can tell, yes, it was typical for women to go together, to go get water. Usually it was of an evening. Sometimes they would go in the morning and that just makes sense because it's hot and you don't want to have to walk with all this weight. They'd carry it on their shoulders. It was difficult. From our modern context, and like a little bit more recently in history, that is the typical times, but there is nothing that indicates historically or socially currently that women don't go to wells in the middle of the day, and that women only go with other people. So there's this sense in which it's, it's not normal, it's not typical, it's maybe not the way everybody did it, but this woman doesn't have to only, like just because somebody goes at noon, doesn't mean that like that's like that they're totally rejected and that they have no friends and that she's in hiding. I think holy conjecture here, Jonathan Miller, take this or leave it. I think it's John's way of saying again that the spirit's up to something, that the spirit's urging, kind of prompting. And here's the thing: she may not have any idea. Jesus has an idea. He hears, feels. The there are other moments and places and times. I think that things happen and we just kind of do things and we don't know why. I did this before I really gave my life to the Lord. I can look back and be like, I remember making that decision and I have no idea why I made it. I just was supposed to met me there. I think John is pleading with his readers to see the work and the power of in the life of humanity. Because wanting us to see that Jesus meets with people that have had hardship, that have had difficulty, that have been there. So this woman that Jesus is talking to, it would have been socially kind of like unacceptable to some small degree. There's varying ideas of like whether rabbis or Jews should talk, like should teach to women. And like all things, there, nothing is a monolith. Nothing is like all the same. And so there were varying opinions on this. Some rabbis would say like you shouldn't even teach your own daughters uh, because you should only teach men theology. And some would say no, you can talk to anybody. It, but it is a little weird but you I love the disciples response that John makes sure that we want to know like they haven't even been with him by that long and by this point they're already like oh he's just doing his weird things again like they didn't even ask like I mean it was weird that he's talking to a woman but I mean everything he does is weird because that's just who Jesus is and he's always challenging their notions and their ideas and so the the real scandal or the controversy that she senses the woman at the well whose name we never know is that he's asking her to draw water. She would know when she says, like, I'm a Samaritan, she's saying, you can't use my utensils. She knows this. You can't use the things that I have touched because they're now no longer holy. Those things are now contaminated. And you, a Jew, should know better. I know better. This woman's intellect and her theological knowledge and her wisdom is displayed by John again and again throughout this passage. You see that this is a woman that knows what she is talking about. And when she begins to engage in theological debate with Jesus, I do not think that it is just her simply trying to like trick him or get out of like his knowledge of her life. I think it is her earnest and deep desire, just as it was with Nicodemus. And I think this is why John's showing these two things together of saying, I know what is supposed to be true. 
but will someone please show me the truth? I, I've understood, I'm learned, I'm knowledgeable, I'm intelligent, but yet I'm aware to know that like something feels off when we get into a debate about what mountain worship is supposed to be on. That feels like it's missing the point, even though that's what we've always been told. It feels like there's something not adding up there, so please, will you tell me, where are we supposed to worship? I think, too, that this is a desperate woman that has experienced a religious kind of exile from people around him. Samaritans would have been a small number of people kind of landlocked by those that would have disagreed with everything that they stood for to some shape or form. And I think she's going like, I long to be accepted. I long to be able to be a part of this. I see the good in it. I see the truth in it. Again, this may be my conjecture. I could be reading too much into it, but I think that if you look at it, it's there. There's this idea in which she wants to do this thing. And so she starts to ask these questions. She longs for the water. She says, please let me have it. And then she goes into these theological debates because she understands what she's asking for. We do the same thing. And sometimes it is an excuse. Sometimes it is our way of feeling compelled by the Spirit to do something. And we want to try to reason or logic our way out of it and sometimes it is just being a normal human being that says like if I'm going to give my life to this if I'm going to upend what I understand and know if I'm going to change the way in which I orient myself to something like who God is I need to know this is true hear me when I tell you that it is good and totally fine to wrestle and to question and to doubt and to ask things and to look up things and to just go like hey, I don't know if I can just take this. I don't know if I can just go, yeah, you're living water. Sure, I'm in. Especially for those that have had religious, religious trauma. Like, it is okay. It's okay to seek that, to, to wrestle with that, to give yourself space, to give yourself time. But like this woman, I think that what you need is you need to move towards Jesus as Jesus makes himself available. And so you see her wrestling. You see she's a woman of, uh, of her mind and of reason. I think that's good. I think it's okay. This is the longest conversation we have in Scripture with Jesus and anyone else. The Samaritan woman, John 4. Longest one. I mentioned earlier that it's also the only space that he clearly and plainly states that he is the Messiah. And so there's all these things. And as she's wrestling, as any of us would, asking questions, wanting to know, he does this thing that only Jesus does is he makes it personal. And this is what the Spirit does with us. We wrestle, we long, we ask questions, things are big, those are good, we need to know those, I live there. But the Spirit and Jesus, via the Spirit, is always going to make it personal. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Theological questions are good. Now let me show you how that changes who you are. And he says, bring your husband knows let's just be with the disciples and go he's up to weird things it's a strange question there's no social context for this to kind of happen she says i don't have a husband and he says you're right you've had five husbands and now i think uh he's just like flexing like he's just like this i want to show you i am who i say i am and the spirit does this it gets abused, it gets misused, but the Spirit does this. When, when someone is asking for, to know something, I think the Spirit is good to say, let me show you. Let me show you who I am. And I think that's what Jesus does. And she says, you're a prophet. 
you're the prophet. And for the Samaritans, the one thing that they wouldn't have had in their Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament in their ancient scriptures, they didn't have the prophets. They had the law primarily, and some of them had like the, the history, the stories. But then, you know, they get written out of those real quick, and so they don't really mess with those too much. So when she says you're a prophet, she's not talking about like Isaiah or John the Baptist. She's saying like, you might be the one that comes after Moses. Like she's getting it. This Messiah idea, this guy might be it. Because like he just did something that people aren't supposed to be able to do. He knows me. He's naming things. And like normal people can't do that. And so he says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the current man you're living with is also not your husband. Now, here's the biggest piece of rubble I'm going to clear real quickly. And I think this is really helpful in our modern day, uh, the way we frame conversations around women and uh, authority and all of these things. Think about our modern day society where we talk about sexual abuse and, like, we still use, like, negative terms towards the women or you think about sex trafficking and all the names that get associated with the females in sex trafficking and we call the guys Johns. Like that's not, it's not offensive. I hope not at least, I mean that's a part of my name. Like hopefully calling a guy a John isn't like a, an offensive thing. We so often remove the blame and like this guilt and all of this stuff from the man and we shame the woman. I think this happens in this passage too often in Christianity. There is zero things in this passage, zero, to suggest that she is sexually promiscuous. She has had five husbands. Here's the thing about the ancient Near East. Who can and can't divorce a woman? The man, or the woman. Like, like the woman can't, only the man can divorce. So to have five husbands, there would be a sense where the man has had to divorce her. If she was actually a prostitute and promiscuous, no one would have married, maybe they would have married her the second time, nobody's marrying her the third or fourth time. That doesn't happen. So there are Levitical laws here that were, could be in place. She could be a widow. She could be going from like brother, father, brother, like this way in which, you know, kinsman's redeemer ideas. Uh, she could have been divorced by men. There are some theories that maybe, and there's nothing in the text to suggest this, but just kind of a social way of like, maybe she wasn't able to have a son. We know that story. Abraham or others want to get rid of their wives because they can't have sons. And so they're trying to do this thing this other way. And then the fact that she's living with someone doesn't necessarily mean all that much in this context other than for Jesus to say, it's not ideal. It's not what we would uh, suggest. It's not perfect. In every, I, sh- I don't want to say something as blanket statement as in every other situation. In almost all other situations that I can come up with in my mind off the top of my head without rereading all four Gospels, when sin is in sin, Jesus names it and asks them to repent. Whether it's the blind man that he's about to heal in the next chapter Uh, whether it's uh, someone that needs to repent of the money they've stolen. Uh, Go down the line, like Roman, Gentile, Jew, Pharisee, regular person, beggar, healing, like all of these things. Woman that touches the hem of his garment. These things, like Jesus always looks at them and says, now confess of your sins and go. But you never hear this with the woman at the well. I think that means something. Also, if she was the outcast 
that everyone oftentimes paints her as. Do you think that she would show up in the town and say, hey, everybody needs to come see me, follow me out into the middle of nowhere in the hot sun? I think I found the Messiah. No, they'd be like, that's the crazy woman. It seems that they all go, well, if she's saying that he's out there, then we need to go. And like, not only that, but then John wants us to make sure that we know that they believed her account. They didn't just go check on it to see if like maybe, perhaps, crazy lady's right this time. That being said, what we do know is that this is a woman that has had a very difficult life. And whether she just randomly ends up out there at noon or maybe she goes out there because she's just overcome with grief and hardship and she doesn't want to see all of the women that have their perfect little social lives. I think a lot of people can uh, feel this at, a, at a, like a deep level when things aren't going the way you want them to go. If, if you've ever longed to be married and everybody around you is getting engaged, you might tend to dip out on engagement parties. If you long to have children you, you, and you're just like, oh, I wish like I, this was something in my life, you might be more likely to miss out on, you know, a gender reveal or whatever it is, a baby shower. If you are this person that has experienced this death, this difficulty in life repeatedly, whatever it is, death of a dream, death of an ideal, actual physical death, it would make sense that maybe you would want to avoid some of the women that day and to be like, I, just, I can't hear all the domestic stories of how perfect life is. I'm just going to wait and I'm just going to go by myself. I think that's okay. I think that's normal. I think we can understand that. Because I think what John wants us to see is that the, Jesus longs and intends to meet both those that have it all together and those that have seemed to not be able to figure life out. And he wants to call them into the kingdom and that this is who Jesus is. And that he is on going to the wayward, outside, off the beaten path uh, that no one else would think that we should be associating with places. And he's saying, this is the kingdom. These are the people that I've come for. These are the sick that I long to be near to. And it is Nicodemus and it is the woman at the well. And what is at the root of both of them, I believe, is this way in which they have deep desires. Nicodemus's desires are unfulfilled desires that I think are present or latent in everything kind of happening the way that he thought it should, and yet he longs for something more. And I think on the flip side of that, you have a woman that longs for life to just be the way that it's supposed to be, that hasn't had everything work out, and what Jesus is lo looking at them and saying is that as long as you're placing your desire there, you will always be thirsty. You'll always want more. You'll always be asking yourself, how do I get the thing that I need? You will always be the victim. You will always be the person that hasn't had things just work out the way they were supposed to or that somebody's holding out on them. Or So you're like if you're the woman at the well or you're Nicodemus, you know, Nicodemus is probably the person that everybody's going like, dude, like, why do you just keep, like, working that hard? Like, you've arrived, and he can't go to sleep at night because he's got, like, he's got to do more, I would imagine. This type A kind of achiever personality. The woman at the well, I would imagine at some point she would have to just be like, man, my life's terrible, and it's not my fault. It's awful, all of these things, and everybody would be like, yeah, like, this person, like, 
what, what's wrong with her? Like there would have to be a sense in which I think some people would think that, right? And what Jesus is saying is in the middle of all this, you thirst, you long, you desire, and it is good. But come to me. I will quench your thirst. Marriage, family with a white picket fence, two and a half kids and a dog, no cats unless it's in the horror story version. That won't, like you, you won't, be quenched. The job you think you have, the financial situation that you're longing for, that won't quench your desire. Yes, those things are good and it's okay to desire those things, but that will not quench your desire. Finally, doing everything perfectly, reading the right number of books, praying the right number of prayers, having the perfect schedule, biohacking your life, working out exactly when you're supposed to, all of these things, that won't fix your life. Finally getting the job that you think you need or deserve, that won't fix your life. You will still be thirsty. You will still be hungry. But if you, like Jesus, when you see the works of the kingdom take place, when you see in front of you the Spirit moving and you allow yourself to be led by the Spirit, you too, like Jesus, who was hungry a few minutes ago and said, hey guys, go get me some food. And then they come back and he says... I have food that you guys don't even know about. You're too busy thinking about this food, and I'm over here feasting on the life of the kingdom. Hear me when you say, like, Jesus' whole situation hasn't changed. Poor dude still never got his drink of water. He's still thirsty. He's still hungry. He doesn't eat, but he says, and this is what I think is good to note, that he is fully human, and he needs these things in this moment, and simultaneously he is able to rejoice and to say, I have been feasting because the Spirit has been at work, and that is where I put my trust first. That is the primary invitation. That is the primary place in which my nourishment and my fulfillment and my hope, and my joy, and my sustenance, and my whatever it is, more adjectives, if you can think of them, they go. It's in Jesus. In the Spirit, the life of the kingdom, there. Jesus still needs to eat. He's going to eat a whole bunch more times. So much so in the Gospel of John that he's going to be called a glutton and a drunkard. Your physical, your emotional, your intellectual desires, your aim to get things right, your aim to have something accomplished, your aim to be accepted into something, a family, a community, to not be alone. These are good desires. Lent, so oftentimes we think of in our modern 21st century, especially as American minds, like we think of temperance and abstinence and all this, and it's a complete withdrawal. And for the season of Lent, that's what some of you have chosen to do, and that's a good thing. But I'm, like, outside of our minds, like temperance and these things, oftentimes it's not a complete removal of saying, like, that's not good. It's to say, it's good up to a certain point. And then at that point, it becomes something that I can't manage and control. And I think Jesus is saying that to, the, to, to Nicodemus, to the woman at the well. He's saying, your desires are good. Your longings are good. I place them in you. It's normal and it's right. And he, as the son of man that comes and takes on our frame and our nature and lives as a human, he knows them just as well as we do, and he knows their pain, and he knows their difficulty. Now, I don't think he would ever look at that woman and be like, well, just forget about everything and just, you know, be happy that the Spirit is here with you. But he does look at her, and he says, I can give you water in which you will never thirst again. As the band comes back up and we move to communion, in many ways, each and every Sunday, that is our invitation here. 
is to be invited to come and to feast on the body and the blood of Jesus. To eat of the spiritual food that will not wither away and that will not leave you just needing more. To drink of the cup that does not need to be sacrificed again and again. Yes, we do it again and again because it is more than a remembrance. It is also a remembrance. We believe that the Spirit is present in a different kind of way when we do this. But Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. The blood we drink of out of the cup, the bread, the body that we eat, this is done. It is finished. And we partake in it and we feast in it and we enjoy it in a way that allows us to know that we no longer have to strive in the same kind of way. As we let this nourish us and quench us and satiate us, the invitation from the Spirit is to live into a life where our desires and our wants are changed. We wrestle, we debate, I think that's good. I think the Lord encourages that, He entertains those questions. But primarily what we do is we receive and we receive in such a way that I think it compels us then to go and to want to offer this food and this drink to a wanting and needing world around us. Because we understand and know that these desires, these longings that people have in their hearts, they do not simply go away by just figuring out how to like make you project self better and better. There are realities that are drawing us away from those desires. That's the evil. The evil one longs to tempt us. He's the tempter, oftentimes translated in scriptures. And in that, the temptation is to move off course with the desires that God has put in us. Things that God has longed to give to us. He moves us. And we know that the only way out of that conundrum and that cycle is to give ourselves to Christ the one who ultimately defeats evil in his death, burial, and resurrection and allows us to come to the table in a moment like this. So as the band plays, come and receive the bread and the cup, hold on to those elements, go back to your seat, sit there with it, reflect, sing along, pray, and after everybody's gotten their elements and the song wraps up, I'll come back up and I'll lead us in the reception of those elements. And as you do that, be reminded of this great gift we have and this nudging and this leading of the Spirit that allows us to be compelled into this life of the kingdom that is infinite and full that I feel like so many of us know we're lacking and wanting. Let it come and be found in the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.